Ladies and gentlemen, seldom has history offered a greater opportunity to do so much for so many. We have confronted and will continue to confront HIV-AIDS in our own country. And to meet a severe and urgent crisis abroad tonight, I propose the Emergency Plan for AIDS Relief, a work of mercy beyond all current international efforts to help the people of Africa. This comprehensive plan will prevent 7 million new AIDS infections, treat at least 2 million people with life-extending drugs, and provide humane care for millions of people suffering from AIDS and for children orphaned by AIDS. Welcome to the Brookings Cafeteria, the podcast about ideas and the experts who have them. I'm Fred Dews. You've just heard President George W. Bush in his 2003 State of the Union Address, in which he proposed a program, now called PEPFAR, to treat millions of people afflicted with HIV-AIDS. Since World War II, the United States has been a global leader in improving the lives of the world's neediest people and has used its resources to help other countries improve governance, reduce poverty, and spur development. Today, U.S. foreign assistance programs are increasingly under challenge due to changing budgetary and political realities, growing concerns over fragile states, increased calls for effectiveness of aid programs, and concerns about the shifting roles of multilateral institutions and the private sector. This episode of the Brookings Cafeteria is the second of two episodes that examine the challenges and opportunities facing U.S. foreign assistance. The first focus on what Americans think about foreign assistance programs and America's role in the world, on U.S. leadership in an increasingly multipolar world, concerns about fragile states, and consensus ideas for reforming the U.S. foreign aid architecture. In this episode, you'll hear foreign assistance success stories, learn about the importance of the private sector in aid financing, the role of China, measuring effectiveness, and finally, thoughts on general principles about why we should and do support global development. The analysis and ideas in both episodes draw from top voices in the development community, people who are leaders in government, academia, NGOs, and the private sector. The experts featured here and in the first episode were some of the participants at the 14th annual Brookings Blum Roundtable, a three-day conference held in August that included nearly 50 prominent policymakers, practitioners, academics, and industry leaders. The roundtable was hosted by Richard C. Blum and the Global Economy and Development Program here at Brookings. You can learn more about the Brookings Blum Roundtable in the conference report now published on our website. Before taking you into the discussions on U.S. foreign assistance, I want to present a new installment of our regular feature, What's Happening in Congress, with Molly Reynolds. She's an expert on congressional rules and procedures and how those affect policy outcomes, and is the author of the book Exceptions to the Rule, The Politics of Filibuster Limitations in the U.S. Senate, recently published by the Brookings Institution Press and featured on this podcast. My name is Molly Reynolds, and I'm a fellow in the Governance Studies Program at the Brookings Institution. The Senate may be on recess this week, But even with senators back home in their states, the chamber has still been in the spotlight thanks to pointed criticisms levied at President Trump by Senator Bob Corker of Tennessee. What should we make of this emerging public conflict between a Republican committee chair and a president of his own party? It's highly unusual, especially in our current period of strong partisan teamsmanship. We simply don't expect influential senators to go on the record about the fitness of a president of their own party to lead and to suggest that he might put the country in danger. In this way, Corker's comments are certainly newsworthy. 
Some have argued that Corker's comments are worth little if they are not followed up by concrete steps, whether that be voting against Republican policy priorities or withholding support for Trump nominations. Many of these critics are likely to be disappointed by what comes next. Republican members of Congress got elected to Congress to pursue Republican Party goals, and when opportunities emerge to pursue those ends, Republicans will continue to seize them. On the possibility of increased oversight, work in political science tells us that investigations are generally less frequent under unified party control of Congress and the White House. Given the tenor of Corker's comments, Trump could prove an exception to this pattern, but it would require a number of Republicans who Corker says share his view coming out of the shadows. That doesn't mean that conflict between Trump and members of Congress of his own party also isn't going to jeopardize Republicans' ability to make progress on the party's legislative agenda. Republicans hold only 52 seats in the Senate, meaning that for things they want to do on a party-line basis, like adopting a budget resolution that would set the stage for a filibuster-protected tax bill, they can lose at most two votes. Alienating one or more of those votes certainly doesn't help Trump get what he wants out of the legislative process, but a rift would also make life harder on the congressional end. The Republican Party is divided on a number of key issues, including important parts of potential tax legislation. We would usually expect a president of the same party to help bridge these divides. Trump, however, is not well-equipped to do so. His low approval ratings give him little political capital to use to offer members political cover for choices they may not want to make. His disengagement with policy substance means he's unlikely to be able to persuade members on the merits. Adding an open conflict between members and the president only makes this problem worse. And on issues where the threat of a filibuster in the Senate requires cooperation with Democrats, like a future bill to keep the government open past early December, Republican intraparty divisions only increase Democrats' leverage. If the rift continues and deepens from here, there may well be consequences outside the chamber as well. The public nature of the conflict means that members of the press will ask many other congressional Republicans about whether they agree with Trump or Corker. Some may follow in Corker's footsteps, though, as many observers have emphasized, Corker is politically well-positioned to levy these kinds of criticisms, since he has recently announced he's retiring next year. Others may remain behind Trump, especially those who fear primary challengers in 2018, a threat that former White House strategist Steve Bannon has recently been escalating. Still others will carefully try to split the difference with comments that focus on ending the feud. These statements, especially any that echo Corker sentiments, may have ripple effects on public opinion. Political scientists have long documented how voters often take cues from partisan elites like members of Congress. Much has been made of Trump's vaunted base, who say they will continue to support the president no matter what. But his victory also relied on more reluctant voters who supported him because he was the Republican candidate and they, too, are Republicans. It's this latter group of voters who are most susceptible to any emerging messages critical of the president and who are most critical to Republicans' efforts to stave off the electoral consequences of Trump in the 2018 midterms. The president's party almost always loses seats in midterm elections, even when its members in Congress are united behind their party's standard bearer, and it is these more marginal Republican voters who will be key in maintaining Republican control of vulnerable House and Senate seats. Congress has a busy fall ahead of it, with continued work on the budget resolution, a coming tax bill, and a spending fight that's likely to include conflict over immigration policy on tap for early December. Working through these and other issues will present challenges, even without high-profile conflicts between members of Congress and the White House, but divisions between the two ends of Pennsylvania Avenue don't make things easier. That's what's happening in Congress. 
And now on with part two of our series on U.S. foreign assistance under challenge. In a conversation with me, Senior Fellow and Co-Director of the Global Economy and Development Program, Homi Karas, details the impact of U.S. foreign assistance over the past 10 years. When you look at the contributions in terms of the improvements that have been uh, generated in people's lives over even just the last decade, it's quite considerable. So by some estimates, there have been, just with vaccinations, probably 3 million uh, lives saved each year because of uh, U.S. funding for vaccinations. There have probably been uh, 12 million children that have uh, received better nutrition Stunting, which is a form of undernutrition, is something that has been a uh, scourge of the developing world for uh, years. With U.S. leadership, that's been dramatically uh, reduced over the last decade. The U.S. has contributed to tremendous improvements in primary school enrollment of both boys and, importantly, uh, girls. Today in the world, we have almost equal enrollment rates between uh, boys and girls. Of course, the U.S. has always been the largest provider of humanitarian assistance. So every time there is a flood or a drought or an earthquake, it's the U.S. that's always in the uh, lead. They have the capabilities, often the uh, logistics capabilities, the military helicopters and other kinds of things, uh, and have always led the world support to people who suffer from these kinds of disasters. Karas also mentioned PEPFAR, about which you heard from President George W. Bush at the start of this episode, noting that the program has over a million people receiving treatment. And all of these efforts of U.S. assistance have been underpinned by core U.S. values of democracy, of gender equality, of uh, human rights, of better governance. So it's really spreading I would say, U.S. values around the world. And that might ultimately be the most lasting source of improvement that the U.S. brings to people around the world. Throughout these two episodes, most of the experts you'll hear from were interviewed by my colleague, Meryl Tuck Primdall, the Director of Communications for the Global Economy and Development Program. She was at the Brookings Blum Roundtable in Aspen, where most of these interviews took place. So I thank her for this collaboration. And now here are some foreign aid and development success stories that not only showcase positive results, but also illuminate some of the ideas discussed at the Brookings Blum Roundtable, particularly in regard to foreign aid effectiveness, partnerships, and catalyzing development. One of these themes is the vital role in development played by NGOs and multilateral institutions, that is, not just the U.S. government. Here's Merrill on the phone with Richard Blum, host of the Brookings Blum Roundtable and also an honorary and former trustee of the Brookings Institution. He's chairman and president of Blum Capital Partners, founder of the Blum Center for Developing Economies at UC Berkeley, and also founder and chairman of the American Himalayan Foundation. In episode one, Mr. Blum talked about starting the Brookings Blum Roundtable, and now he talks about his work in Nepal. Well, just educating Sherpas has made a huge difference. We now have Sherpas who, 50 years ago, all they did was carry loads up and down the mountains where They're now professionals, either in Nepal or elsewhere. The granddaughter of my oldest Sherpa friend is in her senior year in high school, and she was just ranked in India, one of the three brightest kids in all of India. Her brother now has graduated from the University of San Francisco and is a CPA and wants to go back and help reform the finance sector of Nepal. 
and you know they become pilots they become every profession you can name so and there was only one small school when we started which was at Hillary's school up in Solokumba where the Sherpas live we've also tried to do the same for so many Tibetan refugees there's probably 50,000 Tibetan refugees or more just in Nepal alone and way more than that in India uh, we've also whenever we could try to aid them both in terms of education health care and protecting religious institutions in Tibet. In the first episode of this series, Ngozi Okonjo-Iwala spoke about U.S. leadership with respect to multilateral institutions and development, one of the key themes of the Brookings Blum Roundtable. She was previously finance minister of Nigeria, managing director of the World Bank, and a senior fellow at Brookings, and now is chair of the board of Gavi, the Global Alliance for Vaccines and Immunizations, also called the Gavi Alliance. Gavi is an independent public-private partnership and multilateral funding mechanism that focuses on health by increasing access to immunizations in poor countries. It's an example of how a private institution works with the U.S. and other governments to deliver effective aid programs. Akonjo Iwala explains why Gavi's support from the United States has been so strong and emphasizes the alliance nature of the organization. Gavi is the Global Alliance for Vaccines and Immunization, the Gavi Alliance, and it has a very straightforward goal to immunize children in the world and save lives. And Gavi's results have been very spectacular in the last 16 years of its existence. It's immunized 580 million children and it has saved 8 million lives. And its objective is to immunize another 300 million by 2020 thereby saving about 5 million lives. So the objectives are clear, they're measurable. We're saving lives, and I think this is one of the reasons why the U.S. has safeguarded its contributions to Gavi, for which we're very, very grateful. The U.S. has been a leader in the area of health and of child mortality, and its efforts with Gavi, it's Gavi's third largest donor supporter, are paying off. And this is one of the reasons we think that Gavi has been safeguarded. Secondly, we have strong bipartisan support. I think legislators on both sides of the aisle really understand the importance of what their money does and how measurable the results are, and so they strongly support Gavi. However, we are an alliance. So the very fact that we have support does not make us sanguine because we work with WHO, we work with UNICEF, we work with other members, with private sector organizations, the pharmaceuticals. It's an alliance that delivers. We work with the World Bank. So to the extent that these other organizations are to be effective as part of the alliance, we would strongly also argue and support making sure that they get the resources that they need. Another participant at the Brookings Blum Roundtable, Carolyn Miles, is president and CEO of Save the Children USA, an organization that helps children in 120 countries including the United States, in areas that include health, education, and hunger. Here she is talking about how innovation is critical to the organization's programs. We're trying to do big things like end the preventable deaths of children and make sure every child gets to school and protect them from harm. So if we don't do that in a different way than what we've done for the past almost 100 years, we actually aren't going to get to that last mile, to those hardest-to-reach kids. And one of the things we've said 
is that we have to go for the most deprived children in order for us to be successful. So innovation is really key to that and doing things in a different way. And so within Save the Children, we've set up a way to actually lift up the innovations that are happening all the time, give them a little bit more light and some more resources. So some of the examples, as I said, one of our biggest goals is saving the lives of kids under five. And the thing that kills children, actually the one disease that kills the most children in the world right now is pneumonia which is usually kind of surprising to people. The hardest thing about pneumonia in rural areas is diagnosing it, making sure that a child actually has pneumonia and then making sure that we have the antibiotics and the treatment. But that diagnosis in functioning health systems, it's quite easy. There's diagnostic tools, there's x-rays, there's MRIs. But in low resource settings out in the middle of a village somewhere, you don't have any of those things. So we've developed, for example, a new diagnostic tool with Philips that straps to the baby's chest and counts the number of breaths that the baby or the child is taking and makes a diagnosis. And it does it with little pictures, which sometimes community health workers are not literate, so they're not going to be able to read a diagnostic tool unless it actually has a picture that shows them, okay, this is a child that actually does have pneumonia and needs to be treated. So that's one example. It's a really simple little tool. Another example, we have humanitarian workers all around the world, and when we have a crisis, so a rapid onset like an earthquake, right, in Haiti, you need to get people from all over the world that'll get mobilized and get to that response. And so we're developing an app that actually will allow people to put in pre-screen everybody who might be available, the language they speak, the specialty that they have, the availability that they might have. So when an emergency hits, you can send an alert to all of the people who have already signed up to be responders, and you can very quickly fill that roster and get people on the way to that emergency because most times in a very large-scale emergency, the country office kind of gets overwhelmed. They can't do it all themselves. So those are just two simple examples of how we're thinking about innovation using technology in those two examples. And we've got to be able to do that and do it in a different way or we won't get to the most deprived kids. Here's another example. One project that we've done that is absolutely uh, sort of something I personally get into quite a bit is a small community center and a boxing gym. There's a couple that has spent 25 years on shoestrings offering up small, in their gym, boxing lessons for little kids in a gang-riddled community. And they've never figured out how to make it sustainable. So they literally go from good Samaritan to good Samaritan. I'm John Feely. I'm the American ambassador in Panama. So I became involved through a whole series of happy coincidences. And what we decided was, we're not going to give you a huge amount of money. First off, I had to go out and find it. And what did I do? I found it with the Rotarians, the Rotary Club of Panama, which is a marvelous organization, but had never really worked in this area. We got them to commit to putting money in, and it's small scale. It's very small scale stuff. We're talking about $30,000. But to improve the physical structure of this community center slash boxing gym. But then perhaps the most important part was to get my Canadian colleague down there in the Canadian mission in Panama to provide through their ODA a local NGO to give the business skills training to this couple who have basically been 
chicken soup and boxing gloves for the last 25 years, but to give them an ability to do budgeting, to do all of the things you would need to make this a sustainable organization and with a view towards having an entrepreneurial side. And of course, because it sort of has caught on and there's success, through that success, we have attracted the interest of local government. They now want a piece of this or they want to be seen as supporting it. And we've been good in orchestrating that sort of dance whereby they don't come in and take it over, but when we need them, we can call on them, we can use the bully pulpit of the local mayor. All of those things are pretty easily accomplished as long as you get the bandwidth of committed people and a good public-private partnership. These case studies, if you will, of assistance from Gavi to Save the Children to the U.S. Embassy in Panama reflect major themes from the Brookings Blum Roundtable including the idea that aid is increasingly catalytic, that new partnerships are needed, and that local government engagement and ownership in countries where the U.S. provides aid can improve effectiveness, build government capacity, and establish relationships with people on the ground. Here's Homi Karas again on how aid is often akin to seeding the ground, a sort of catalyst for development. In 1961, most countries were really very poor indeed and couldn't make um, much uh, headway just using their own resources. Today, there are only about 30 countries that we classify as being uh, low income. In most of the other countries, uh, where the vast majority of the world's population uh, now lives, they are middle-income countries, and so they have their own domestic resources which they're using to apply towards their own development. That's changed aid from being the center of uh, development to being a catalyst for development. It's something that has to complement countries' own uh, resources. And at the same time, we now have much more participatory processes in uh, development cooperation. It's not just an intergovernmental process. It also involves uh, civil society in both the North and the South doing very important work. And increasingly, it also involves businesses. So one of the last major pieces of U.S. engagement was through Power Africa, where it's American businesses in conjunction with uh, U.S. development assistance, which has undertaken this great challenge of bringing electricity to uh, millions of Africans. A key component of catalyzing for development and a focus point of the Brookings Blum Roundtable is that aid should also catalyze private investment, the scale of which, as Karas explains, far exceeds government aid. He calls this the most important recent trend in development assistance today. We have to understand that foreign direct investment is a $700 billion a year enterprise into developing uh, countries compared to aid, which is now running at about $140 billion. So foreign investment, private investment, is five times the size. If that can be made sustainable, meaning incorporating issues of environmental sustainability, of better governance, of uh, better social uh, uh, and labor practices, then of course the impact on development is going to be massive. And there was a, uh, a really important study done by the Commission, uh, Business Commission for Sustainable Development, called Better Business, uh, Better World, that identified $12 trillion of opportunity for business in the sustainable development area. They identified 60 subsectors and they said the market here is $12 trillion. This is not about let's 
do things differently so that we can help others. And, uh, you know, yes, it'll cost us a little bit. This is let's do things differently because there's a massive market opportunity here. We can really make money and at the same time help improve people's lives. That's the new thing about uh, business and uh, sustainable development that's really exciting. Luis Alberto Moreno, president of the Inter-American Development Bank, a leading source of development financing for Latin America and the Caribbean, offered his thoughts on this, as he put it, very important question for development. There is always going to be limits as to the amount of public resources one can put to good use around development challenges. And the bigger question is, how do you really crowd in the private sector to do so many of the development needs that we have today? We used to have a number of private sector arms in the IDB. They were all small, and we consolidated all of them into one and put more capital. That was a long, complex process, but we were fortunate to get a lot of support from all our shareholders. And in our first year and a half of operations, we're now almost doubling the amount of what currently the IFC is doing in Latin America. The IFC is the International Finance Corporation, an affiliate of the World Bank Group, that focuses exclusively on the private sector in developing countries. President Moreno continues. This is not about a competition of who does more, but more importantly, it is a question of how you can look at gaps in development that exist, that merit an institution that is focused on development to try to unlock the possibilities for the private sector to come in. So let me explain that. Imagine private-public partnership in infrastructure. The very early stages of financing typically is where you have less attractiveness. Of course, when a project is finished operating, many hedge funds, asset managers, or any kind of pension fund will be more than happy to invest in those kinds of assets. But to get it to that point, you got to start early. And so that means establishing long-term financing in local currency, for instance, where you don't take a foreign exchange risk or developing small and medium enterprises, or working beyond financial institutions to support women entrepreneurs. Those are the kinds of things that have huge development impact. China, too, is part of this transformation in development assistance. The Brookings Blum Roundtable Conference Report asks, is China friend or foe? Is it a competitor and threat to U.S. interests or a potential ally? The answer, the report says, may be both. I asked Homi Karas to talk about how the U.S. and other entities can work alongside China. China has expanded its uh, development collaboration along uh, two distinct pathways. One pathway has been through its own institutions, in particular the China Development Bank and the China Exim Bank. But the other instrument has been through setting up of multilateral institutions, one of which is called the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, and the other is called the New Development Bank. In these multilateral agencies, I think the uh, Chinese have really tried to uh, learn the lessons of what has constrained the other multilateral uh, development banks and design institutions that are fit for purpose for the 21st century. There was a concern that they might lead to lower standards. Probably the reality is that they will lead to higher standards. They're more agile. They have better decision-making processes. They are uh, respectful of countries' uh, uh, own programs. And so they're actually moving extremely rapidly and extremely fast. 
And I think that already there's a lot of cooperation between these multilateral banks and the older multilateral banks in co-financing of the same operation. Uh, so I think that there are some real opportunities for collaborating with these Chinese headquartered new multilateral institutions, and they are providing a uh, much-needed boost to the firepower of the multilateral development bank system as a whole. But I wanted to explore this issue of China a bit deeper. The Roundtable Conference Report notes that 10,000 Chinese firms are operating in Africa, 90% of them privately owned. And in the words of one Roundtable participant, the roads China builds in Africa are roads back to China. Should this be concerning? Well, I think one of the beauty of uh, networks and connectivity is that in a network, when you have roads, they actually serve the entire network. So the roads don't just lead back to uh, China. The roads and the ports lead countries to actually become connected to the global economy. Of course, China is an important player in the global economy, but so is the United States, so is Japan, so is Europe and other countries. So the more that we can build networks and connectivity, the better we all are. So this is not something that is just aiming to uh, benefit China. This is really something that can benefit the global uh, economy and bring prosperity to all. On this question, the conference report concludes that there needs to be deeper understanding of how China operates in the development arena and where there are opportunities for collaboration. The effectiveness of U.S. foreign assistance is a critical challenge for U.S. assistance programs. Taxpayers want to be assured that their dollars are being put to good use in programs that help other people, that catalyze the private sector, that complement the work of NGOs and other governments. In other words, what are the measures of success? You heard earlier from Homi Karas, Richard Blum, Ngozi Okonjo-Iwala, Carolyn Miles, and John Feely about development success stories. Miles of Save the Children USA said that building the evidence base of what works and what doesn't is really important. If you don't know, did it really work and what parts of the program actually really worked and what didn't, it's going to be hard to improve it the next time around. So the strategy that we take is we don't do a really rigorous evidence-based measurement of every single program because, frankly, it's expensive. It's very time-consuming for our staff. So what we'll do is we'll take programs that are representative of a whole set of programs, like on education. So the example would be we want to measure whether or not kids are actually learning how to read by the time they get to the fifth grade. And most kids that we work with in developing countries, the fifth grade is as far as they get. So if they don't know how to read, by the time they get to the fifth grade, they probably won't. So we don't measure every single program in terms of reading capabilities. What we do is we take representative programs and we measure those quite rigorously. And then we look at making sure that the same things, and we see whether those programs resulted in kids actually learning how to read or they didn't. And we have randomized controlled trials. And so we match that against a school that doesn't have that program. 
And then we look at what the key success factors were and we take those key success factors into other programs. And then a couple years later, we'll go measure another program to make sure that we try to measure most of the programs in an area. But if you did that kind of rigorous evidence base with every single program, it would be cost prohibitive and donors won't pay for it. So we usually take funding out of our own funds to be able to do that. Sometimes they will, but a lot of times they won't. But it gives you this base of evidence. And then you also match that evidence. So that example I gave of literacy, we actually then work with other partners like World Vision, for example, who has a huge literacy program. And we compare our results with other organizations that are doing similar work. And we build this evidence base in a cost-effective way and in a way that doesn't have our staff spending every minute measuring results versus trying to deliver the programs. And that's a way you can build evidence base that really shows the effectiveness of the programs and most importantly shows us what works and what doesn't so we can make the program better each time we go. Ambassador Feely says that monitoring, evaluation, and measures of effectiveness are getting a lot of attention now. He emphasizes the importance of developing effectiveness metrics with communities and people on the ground. One of the things that I've seen in terms of how we develop the metrics, both in Washington and previous jobs that I've had and in the field, is that those metrics are often written by folks who are not on the ground. They may be informed slightly, but what we tend to do, and where I've seen this begin to change, and I think it's a very encouraging development, what we really need to do is get the measures of effectiveness and the goals and objectives, the very concrete goals and objectives we want to see from the very communities that we are trying to assist. In the early years, we ended up with all kinds of, you know, a quinine you know, angels dancing on the head of the pin, you know, how many policemen did you train? How many children received vaccinations? And those are all metrics that are good. But when you talk to people on the ground and when you talk to the communities that you're looking to implement, when you talk with local providers who may be working with official development assistance from the United States or any government, for that matter of fact, what you find are they describe things that are not quite as neatly measured you find that they describe states of being, socioeconomic well-being, political well-being, senses of enfranchisement that they currently lack, that they would like to see in their future. And one of the things I think we would do very well to continue to do is to factor in what they want and get it as much as we can in language that's going to get through the CBJ, the Congressional Budget Justification, that we can take and our colleagues in Washington can explain to authorizers and appropriators, but not get so wrapped up in the inputs and outputs of a specific program. It's easy to do. It's also very frequently the shortest rope by which you can hang yourself because if you don't make X number of teachers trained, well, somebody who doesn't like that program can very easily come along and say it's a failure. So what I encourage all people who are working at the implementing end of any kind of U.S. ODA is to take the time to do the sort of perception surveys as a baseline and very specifically design the desired outcomes of the target community that you're looking to work with.
Ambassador Feely adds that getting country ownership and ownership by those whom you are trying to help is absolutely essential to the legitimately needed monitoring and evaluation and measures of effectiveness exercise. Sharing success stories, measuring effectiveness, catalyzing aid in the private sector. All of these and more are vital components of the development agenda and factored into the discussions conducted by Brookings Blum Roundtable participants in Aspen. But there is a final theme I'd like to introduce in this series about foreign assistance, and that has to do with the reasons why we have foreign assistance programs in the first place. Why do people, especially the American taxpayers, support foreign assistance, and why should they? I asked Liz Schreyer, President and CEO of the U.S. Global Leadership Coalition, to address the question of why Americans support foreign assistance. In the first episode of this series, she said that America is a compassionate nation and that we know that engaging this way with the world is the smart thing to do for our national security and economic interests. As to what resonates with the American public, she said, People have to feel like it's relevant to their lives. Today, people get on planes and they fly across the world and they can feel how quickly a pandemic in an instant, like Ebola, like Zika, can affect them. And that makes it real. And so that connects to them. It's not everybody travels around the world as much as others. And so something like Ebola and Zika, when it hits the news, they can understand it. And so I think that's why it has traction and people understand it. Women and girls is a issue that people also can understand. They can understand the idea of if you can invest in a girl and the statistics all bear out that you invest and you add an extra year or two in their education, it's going to come back and make a difference 10 20% in their economic income in that girl's life for every one year of school. So people understand something very, very tangible that it will make a difference. So I think those issues really resonate with them. What I find, I travel a lot around the country and I talk to people, and there is an understanding that 95% of the world's consumers don't live inside the United States. They live outside the United States. And they understand there's only so many Starbucks we can put on every corner of this country. So they have to understand how we can make sure that we have and are connected to the rest of the world if we're going to have an economy that's strong here. Schreyer also said that we can't look at these issues just as humanitarian issues, but also as national security ones. Because, as she said, if we don't engage, somebody else will. Along these same lines, I asked Homi Karas to explain what he meant when, in a policy brief on U.S. global development leadership in a changing world he authored, he said that the basic motives of U.S. foreign assistance can be summarized as love, trust, and fear. So we were just trying to indicate that, in fact, when we think about development cooperation, many things often go together. Of course, there's empathy with uh, individuals who are less well-off than we are and who are really suffering, often in the most dire conditions, and that's what we have called love. And it refers to these uh, many of the things that I uh, have just talked about, like ensuring that people have adequate nutrition, ensuring they don't go to bed hungry, ensuring that they have an opportunity for a job. But then there's also a part where the U.S. wants to build relationships with others and ultimately build trade and investment uh, relationships with our mutual interest. So this is not just a handout. This is actually an investment in a more prosperous uh, world. 
And you have to have a trusting uh, relationship with partners to do that. And probably the best example is the emergence of South Korea from a uh, country which was heavily dependent on uh, U.S. development cooperation to now a uh, major trading partner of the uh, U.S., a contributor to many of the electronic and other items that we uh, buy. And so it's a relationship built on the initial foundation of foreign assistance that has now matured into a much more deeper uh, relationship. And then finally, there are all these set of issues where the U.S. is trying to ward off bad things happening, whether that is the outbreak of a pandemic uh, disease, whether it is a financial catastrophe, whether it is human and drug trafficking, and narco crimes and cybersecurity, all of those kinds of things. U.S. development assistance can really help ensure that they don't take root in a country with weak institutions and then uh, gather enough power to be able to negatively impact on the United States. So what's next for U.S. foreign aid? The Brookings Blum Roundtable Conference Report lays out the key takeaways from the discussions in Aspen, and you can read it on our website. Among these takeaways are many of the topics I've shared with you in these two episodes, including the nature of U.S. development leadership, issues of structural reform of aid delivery agencies, multilateral approaches, how aid catalyzes development and partnerships with the private sector, sharing success stories, and making the moral, economic, and national security cases for development assistance. Here once again is Homi Karas with his thoughts on what's next for those involved in thinking about and leading the development agenda now and into the future. So I think we've got a huge work agenda in front of us. Of course, there is work on uh, making the empirical case, the evidence-based case for why aid and development assistance actually works and what can do, uh, how it can be made to uh, have an even bigger impact, how we can allocate it better. But there's also all kinds of discussions now about uh, new opportunities. There is a very active dialogue about creating a uh, new development finance corporation in the uh, United States that would have a range of different instruments that would allow it to be uh, really effective. That seems to be very promising. I hope that we will be able to contribute to that discussion. There is already uh, draft legislation on the bill being prepared on uh, uh, mechanisms to reduce violence and the root causes of uh, corruption. There's also draft legislation uh, that is calling for a new strategy about dealing with fragile states. There's also a uh, call for a review of multilateral institutions. I think that there are opportunities for uh, thinking about the uh, U.S. taking uh, new approaches towards collaboration with China and new uh, multilateral institutions that are headquartered in China. So just a range of different areas, I think quite specific, but where we see uh, real opportunities to help the U.S. Uh, increase the impact of its already considerable development assistance. You can find the Brookings Blum Roundtable Conference Report on our website, brookings.edu, in addition to a wealth of data and research about U.S. foreign assistance and global development. I want to offer again a special thanks to my colleague, Merrill Tuck Primdell, Communications Director for the Global Economy and Development Program, who collected most of these interviews and assisted me with the production of these episodes. Be sure to download and listen to the first episode in this series about U.S. foreign assistance under challenge. I'll give the last word now to President Bill Clinton, who offered his succinct view of the matter when he addressed the UN General Assembly on September 21st, 1998.
Developing nations have an obligation to spread new wealth fairly, to create new opportunities, to build new open economies. Developed nations have an obligation to help developing nations stay on the path of prosperity and, and to spur global economic growth. And that does it for this edition of the Brookings Cafeteria, brought to you by the Brookings Podcast Network. Follow us on Twitter at Policy Podcasts. My thanks to audio engineer and producer Gaston Reboredo, with assistance from Mark Holscher. Thanks to Brennan Hoban and Chris McKenna for production assistance. Bill Finan does the book interviews. Our interns are Pamela Berman and Julian Chung. Design and web support comes from Jessica Pavone, Eric Abalahin, and Rebecca Weiser. And finally, thanks to David Nassar for his support. You can subscribe to the Brookings Cafeteria on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get podcasts and listen to it in all the usual places. Visit us online at brookings.edu. Until next time, I'm Fred Dews.